Welcome to another special episode of the Dialogue Journal podcast. I'm Taylor Petrie, editor of Dialogue, a Journal of Mormon Thought. Today, we're happy to feature one of the newest members of the Dialogue podcast network, the Signature Books podcast. Since its founding in 1981, Signature Books has worked to advance Mormon studies, promoting honest, thoughtful, and critical works that emphasize human experiences, encourage civil discourse, and foster new approaches to the past, present, and future, a mission which aligns naturally with Dialogue Journal. In this episode, we hear from Sarah Patterson, author of the new book, The September Six and the Struggle for the Soul of Mormonism. This talk was recorded live in the Salt Lake City Library on October 5th, 2023. Enjoy. I teach writing at my college, and there are always habits that it seems every student learned about writing in high school that they then have to unlearn in college. Habit number one, it's okay to make claims like, since the beginning of time, humanity has wondered about my paper topic. <laughs> Habit number two, arguments always and only have three parts. Never four, and God forbid, two. Habit number three, the best way to start a paper is with a dictionary definition. I am constantly trying to get students to break these habits and to realize that there are better and more interesting ways to write. But tonight, I'm going to embrace that final habit in their honor. I, Sarah Patterson, want to tell you about a Wikipedia definition. Last month marked the 30th anniversary of an episode that we typically remember as the September 6th, when six feminists and intellectuals were disciplined by the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in September 1993. Wikipedia has a surprisingly restrained discussion of that episode. As a general overview, the text has three descriptive sentences explaining that, that the September 6th were church members who experienced church discipline all in the same month, and that the church's actions were, quote, referred to by some as evidence of an anti-intellectual posture. The entry then turns to a list of the six. Lynn Whitesides, Avraham Gileadi, Paul Toscano, Maxine Hanks, Levina Fielding Anderson, and D. Michael Quinn offering a few sentences of explanation for their disciplinary proceedings and identifying the person's current relationship to the church. In the midst of Paul Toscano's description are a few sentences about his wife, Margaret, who was excommunicated in November 2000 for her feminist research and publications. It goes on to say, quote, some view her excommunication as constituting a seventh member of the September 6th, as she was summoned in 1993 but ecclesiastical focus shifted to her husband. And that makes it September 7. After discussing how disciplinary proceedings work generally in the church, the entry ends with a statement that, quote, the LDS church later excommunicated Janice Merrill Allred in 1995 and Margaret Merrill Toscano in 2000, both of whom had collaborated with several of the September 6. Does that make it the September 8? The Wikipedia entry, I would argue, is evidence of the allure of the alliteration, as well as its many limitations. 
The human mind is always looking for patterns, clustering events so as to make them more memorable. We have a strong urge to make sense and order out of things that seem sloppy, chaotic, and hard to explain. This is especially true when it comes to historical memory. We want to impose limitations and boundaries to imbue those limitations with meaning so that we can store them in our minds in neat chunks. We want to tame them. While those clusters can be helpful in quickly communicating with one another, they can become so cemented in our minds that we look no further than the meaning that has already been conveyed. This is very true of the episode that we typically remember as the September 6th. We remember confidently that there were six and that we know the reasons why. Explanations have accrued about that month in roughly two patterns. On one side are those who remember the September 6th as a time when the conservative and anti-intellectual institutional church clamped down on public expression of free thinking and personal conscience and its membership, sending a clear message that one must stay in line or get out. On the other side are those who defend the church's choices as difficult ones, but necessary to prevent the church from decaying away from the true church Joseph Smith founded. Necessary because church leaders wanted to create unity and a strong sense of purpose in the church membership as it was rapidly expanding around the globe. Both explanations have become overly and destructively simplified by the limitations placed around the September 6th, leaving us to remember just one month rather than an era in which church leadership clashed with church members over what the meaning of the faith and the meaning of the Restoration would be. As the Church expanded around the world in the late 20th century, I argue the Church hierarchy responded to new diversity and membership numbers by constructing a vision of the Restoration rooted in a purity system, where the categories of pure and impure, or worthy and unworthy, clean and unclean, insider and outsider, came to carry great significance. Purity systems are not built into any cultural or historical context. Rather, they are constructed and maintained in particular times and places. Because the church was experiencing new growth, and because the institution was increasingly aligning itself with the religious right, a movement that understood itself and its values to be under attack by forces in the broader culture, the church hierarchy came to focus on purity and worthiness as its central concern in the late 20th century. In a purity system, behaviors, geographies, individuals, and social groups are all mapped onto the categories of pure and impure. Priesthood holders were at the center of the LDS purity system and dictated both its boundaries and its terms. And this system also had a vision of God as a being who was primarily concerned with living a life of requirements following the rules, and rewarding those who bound themselves to the hierarchies of the system. Individual bodily purity was certainly a component of that purity system, but purity is not just individual. A purity system is structural and is political to its core. The church rooted its purity system in its history telling, and church leaders' history telling was about the nature of the restoration. They understood their work as protecting orthodoxy. In May 1993, Elder Boyd K. Packard of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles gave a talk to the Church's Correlation Committee, 
the committee responsible for ensuring doctrinal orthodoxy, unity, and singularity in the church's teachings. In that talk, Packer described intellectualism, feminism, and the gay lesbian rights movement as outside infiltrators, not indigenous to the church. Portraying these as outsider threats to the restoration made the disciplining of believers who fell into those categories all the more easy and imperative. Their very existence threatened the ability of the institution to stay its course. Packer simply expressed the hierarchy's anxieties about purity. He was calling to believers to come and defend the church. The rhetoric of the institutional church highlighted the hierarchy's emphasis on purity. After the September 1993 disciplinary councils, the First Presidency and Quorum of the Twelve issued a statement in which they said they wanted the public to know that, quote, we have the responsibility to preserve the doctrinal purity of the church. We are united in this objective. The institution was after the preservation of purity at the same time that observers, including Albert Peck, the executive director of Sunstone, noted that church officials felt, quote, the church is fragmenting into factions, and this crackdown is an attempt to keep us together. Peck recognized that the fear of doctrinal fragmentation caused particular anxiety in restoration movements. The church was concerned that there could be, quote, church-wide apostasy, which Latter-day Saints believed destroyed the ancient church established by Jesus Christ and his apostles. And so the pressure felt immense. Managing the theological teachings of a global church was a Herculean task. Excommunications and disciplinary actions surely felt like a warning sign to those who might lead others astray. Added to that immense pressure was the comfort that, in the words of church president Gordon B. Hinckley, our responsibility is not to please the world, but rather to do the will of the Lord. And from the beginning, divine will has been so often contrary to the ways of the world. Thus, church leaders assured church members that criticism from the outside may well be evidence that the church was on the right path. The individuals who came to be dubbed the September 6th were not working in concert. They were not the only dissenters in the church. They did not have a master plan to challenge the purity system. Yet what they did, their community building, their scholarship, their activism, and their beliefs amounted to a challenge. That challenge, though, was heterogeneous, offered in fits and starts, and never unified. Rather, it dem demonstrated the diversity that in reality had been part of the church all along, even as the institution sought to unify, standardize, and correlate. Neither side in this struggle between the hierarchy and dissenters was immune to external political forces or social movements around them. In the late 20th century, the institutional church worked hard to align itself with the religious right. Its anti-intellectualism, its emphasis on the historicity of scriptures, its political activism and theological arguments against anything other than heterosexual monogamy, and its claims about women, the family, and the home worked to cement the church's social and political bonds with conservative evangelical social and political forces. Dissenters at the time contested in various ways the very idea that God was most concerned with holiness and purity. They were molded by feminist theologies and political activism, 
They were formed by new historical methodologies that shaped history telling about both ancient and modern times. They were framed within an era of civil rights in which the movement for black women's and LGBTQ rights enhanced their vision of egalitarianism. They offered a different vision of the restoration. Whether as leaders of the institutional church or individual members within it, all of the people argued that theirs was the vision rooted in the true church. Each claimed that their vision was the one that had not wavered from Joseph, Joseph Smith, that the other sides had been swayed by contextual forces that had knocked them off the path. In this one way, at least all sides were wrong. All of the people involved in this story were profoundly shaped by the cultural and theological ideas swirling around them. Their arguments had roots, both external to the Mormon tradition and indigenous to it. They were all products of their time, arguing for what the meaning of the restoration might be. When people describe September 1993, one way that the, that the disciplinary councils are framed is with a narrative that pairs the September 6th with the excommunications around the same time of several right-wing, apocalyptic, sometimes called ultra-conservative church members. Excommunicated in the early 1990s, ultra-conservatives were hosting regional meetings that often centered around apocalyptic thinking and pushing back against the federal government, including refusing to pay income taxes and, at times, practicing polygamy. This pairing, what I call the middle-of-the-road narrative, implies that as the church was globalizing, the church hierarchy needed to move to the center in order to appeal to and include as many people as possible. Thus, the hierarchy had to cut off those who were extreme on either side. Even members of the September 6 were drawn to this middle-of-the-road narrative. Historian Mike Quinn used it nearly a year before he was excommunicated. He said, the church used to attack liberals and now it's attacking conservatives. It's not inconsistent at all. The leadership just wants everybody to be in the center. Levina Fielding Anderson used it to describe the six themselves. She said, during the month of September 1993, six Mormon scholars in Utah, representing both liberal and conservative ends of the spectrum, were served notices by ecclesiastical leaders to appear before church courts. While the middle-of-the-road narrative is alluring, especially when set against the increasing globalization that meant increasing diversity in the church's fold, it is also highly problematic. First, it allows the church hierarchy to appear to be neutral, simply, simply charting the course of least resistance, staying in the middle, rather than actively defining what the church would look like as it entered the 21st century. That active definition included aligning the institution with the religious right, a blend of conservative Christianity and politics, not in the middle. For this reason, church authorities could also find the middle-of-the-road narrative appealing. It portrayed them as moderates, operating above the fray, masking their own political and theological leanings. Second, the middle-of-the-road narrative suggests that ultra-conservatives and dissenters were extremes on the fringe. Rather than acknowledging the ways that dissenters often represented broader changes in American culture and within the church. And finally, <clears throat> the middle-of-the-road narrative forces variant stories into the same frame, 
making it difficult to see what was actually at work in the story of the September 6th. The middle-of-the-road thesis simply does not hold up. The church disciplinary councils of right-wing ultra-conservative believers were about the nature of the purity system, whereas the September 6th and other dissenters were arguing for an alternative to the purity system. I want to turn for a few minutes to the first group, the ultra-conservatives. The church could be conservative socially, theologically, and politically, and still define right-wing apocalypticists as a threat to the social order. These ultra-conservatives saw common cause with church president Ezra Taft Benson. As a church leader, Benson had always been adamant that large government was a problem and injured the ability of individuals to make free choices. Because of this, he yearned for a romanticized past where he imagined that small and less centralized government allowed the individual to flourish. He was concerned about communism and socialism, which he believed were outside foreign intruders. Ultra-conservatives in the church came to see Benson's beliefs and statements on politics and theology as prophecy. Because of Benson's increasing incapacitation due to his age, Several church leaders were speaking for the church during the time. Even so, right-wing ultra-conservatives believed that Benson's ideals were foundational to the institution, and they hearkened back to a time when they claimed that the church had not given itself over to the broader culture. They called for purity, a purity that returned to an imagined idyllic path. Latter-day Saints like Bo Greitz, Sterling Allen, and Jim and Elaine Harmston argue that other church leaders were taking the institution off its narrow and godly path. From their perspective, the church had accommodated too much to the worldly ways of the broader culture in order to become respectable and mainstream. In the late 1980s, Malcolm Jepson, who had served as a bishop and stake president, was called to the second quorum of the 70 and to be president of the Utah South region of the church. <clears throat> In January 1988, on a visit to the Manti and St. George temples, these ultra-conservative groups first came across his radar and quickly became a focus of his leadership. On that trip, Jepson and his wife met with Robert Rice, a stake president in the area. Rice, quote, mentioned that he had been having people in his stake who were imbued with the philosophy of the end of the world coming very soon, this in spite of his preachments that this was false doctrine. Several had sold their homes, cashed in their insurance and other savings to get money to go out to Northwest Utah. In order to help call people back to an orthodox position, Jepson went to speak to the stake. In his words, I warned about fringe groups who taught these things as teachers of false doctrine and pleaded that each and every one would resolve to follow the first presidency in 12 in matters of church doctrine and policy. Jepson wanted ultra-conservative groups to stop of their own accord. To help Rice, he left a copy of his speech with him, asking him not to circulate it. Even though he made the request, Jepson soon realized that copies of the speech got out. In his position in the second quorum of the 70, he received copies of his own speech, along with commentary from ultra-conservatives. He recalled, they really took me to task, mostly by taking quotes of President Benson out of context and saying that I was speaking contrary to him. 
And so there was a battle of doctrinal orthodoxy, with each side arguing that theirs was the pure form of the church. Benson's words were used by the ultra-conservatives to shore up their claim that they were on the narrow path and that the church had gone astray. In his role as president of the Utah South area, Jepson continued to do battle with these groups where he proved himself to be a fixer for the institution. He understood, <clears throat> he understood that part of his work was now, quote, cleaning up the apostate groups that were forming in southern Utah and eastern Utah. When he received the assignment, he said, one or two of the 12 gave me some hints to the effect that the apostates in the Utah South area were a problem needing to be taken care of. With his charge from the church hierarchy clear, Jepson called a meeting of the stake, mission, and temple presidents in the area. There he outlined for the group a profile of what church members of concern might look like. And from that outline, stake presidents in the region created a list of problematic activities. The latest thrust of the ultra-conservatives' teachings was that the church was being led into apostasy because Benson was physically unwell. They were calling upon the authority of a prophet, one who had preached that those following a prophet would never be led astray. They argued that other church leaders had taken advantage of Benson's incapacity to lead the church away from its foundation and toward more worldly ways. Area President Jepson set up a system to try to cut them off at the roots. He recalled that those who had been disciplined in Southern Utah spoke to the media, quote, and told them, told the TV audiences that I was behind the purging. At a local football game, people placed leaflets on cars, telling the football fans to contact the first presidency and tell them that Jepson was out of line and they needed to call in their watchdog. Even though he hated the publicity, Jepson Riley replied to the pamphleteers, it was so inane since I wasn't doing anything that I wasn't instructed by that very first presidency to do. This entire process showed that the church wanted to rid itself of ultra-conservative members who were preaching that the second coming was at hand. Those members, though, were not critiquing the fact of the purity system present in the church. Rather, based on their readings of the Book of Mormon, the writings of Avraham Gileadi, later one of the September 6th, the teachings of Ezra Taft Benson, and their interpretations of current events, they concluded that the church had gone astray. One of the ultra-conservative community members put it this way, but it's the church that has changed from early doctrine, not us. Fundamentalist Brian David Mitchell, the Salt Lake City man who kidnapped and held Elizabeth Smart captive from June 2002 to March 2003, read a lot of apocalyptic texts. Mitchell felt nostalgia for a church past that had not succumbed to the broader culture, this was a sentiment he shared with other ultra-conservatives. Like them, some of the writings in which Mitchell found inspiration included biblical scholar Abraham Gileadis, writings that had been, become popular in the LDS community and were even published and sold by the church-owned Deseret Book. Mitchell believed that there were eight testaments to Jesus Christ, which included the Bible and the Book of Mormon, but also the works of modern writers like Gileadis. Because of his reading of Gileadi, Mitchell anticipated, anticipated a leader who was mighty and strong and who would appear to inaugurate the second coming. Mitchell understood himself as the Davidic servant who would restore Israel 
prior to that event. Avraham Gileadi was the least six-ish of all of the September 6th. He was an academic and intellectual, but his inclusion in the alliterative September 6th happened only because he was excommunicated in the same month. <clears throat> Gileadi has always been at right angles to the others. He was excommunicated for writing and promoting his book titled The Last Days, a book that was popular in the church community. Even so, Gileadi had his critics. Some were BYU professors who accused him of heresy, making claims about the events leading up to Jesus' second coming that were simply untrue. Gileadi was a rabbinical student in Israel when, in 1972, he came across a copy of the Book of Mormon and decided to convert to the LDS Church. He then moved to Utah, where he attended BYU and earned a doctorate in ancient studies. After his studies, he worked for the church doing translations, teaching, and giving lectures and seminars. It was his best-selling book, The Last Days, published by Deseret Book Company in 1991 that got him into trouble. The topic, of course, was The Last Days. Gileadi argued that his unique contribution to the discourse about The Last Days was tied to his distinct personal history. Because his religious seeking had led him in several directions, he believed that he could, quote, use the research manner of the Jews, information from the Book of Mormon and the Doctrine and Covenants, and this covenant, covenant theology that scholars have researched, tying it back to ancient Near Eastern parallels. In his reading of the Jewish prophets, Gileadi reminded readers that, quote, Israel has always jeopardized her status as a chosen people by adopting the customs of the Gentiles. This was a powerful argument for those who felt that the church was losing its orthodoxy in its bid for cultural acceptance. His book then turned to an exploration of the ancient prophecies while also seeing examples of what those prophecies foretold in the culture of the 1980s and 1990s. Gileadi pointed to television, what he called the immoral music, rock and roll, organized sports, the worship of money, expansive militarism, and nature cults as evidence of what the prophecies foretold. He portrayed all of these aspects of his culture as signs of the last days. For obvious reasons, his book was popular among ultra-conservatives and also other church members. In the midst of the last days rising popularity, though, some in the church raised concerns, perhaps most significantly when the church's Ensign magazine wanted to include portions of Gileadi's chapter on modern idolatry in its pages, the committee in charge of correlation on which Malcolm Jepson served, caught wind of it. They disapproved of its inclusion because the chapter, in Jepson's words, was obvious false doctrine. Because of the Correlation Committee's counsel, Deseret Book decided to stop carrying its own briskly selling book. Some even reported that removal from the shelves was not enough and the press was considering shredding every copy. Instead of that option though, Deseret Books sold Gileadi the remaining copies, which he then resold to Siegel Book and Tape. Siegel sold its entire supply within days. The church hierarchy's concerns about Gileadi came both from his unorthodox arguments, 
and how readers were interpreting those same arguments in his book that was flying off the shelves. Whatever the precise concern, church leaders viewed Gileadi as a problem in need of fixing. In October 1992, Gileadi's stake president, Randall Gibb, counseled him to stop publishing and speaking about the book of Isaiah and predictions about the second coming. Gileadi complied, and Gibb was satisfied. However, Malcolm Jepson, the Utah South area president, wanted actions against Gileadi to proceed further than Gibb was willing to take them. He called Gibb in to give him a report outlining the false doctrines that Gileadi was teaching. After their first meeting, Jepson told Gibb to discipline Gileadi several times. In their final meeting, when Jepson sensed Gibb's resistance to any further action, he put his arm around him and said, excuse me, we're short on counsel in this office, but long on direction. I'm directing you to take action to correct or else excommunicate this man. He cannot be allowed to be teaching what he is teaching and remain a member of the church. Still nothing happened, Jepson wrote in his journal, so Gibb was released as a stake president. Elder Boyd K. Packer selected the new stake president, Leon G. Otten. Some found this choice odd because Otten had just been installed as the state stake patriarch, but to others, the choice made perfect sense. Otten was a professor in BYU's religion faculty and had been a vocal opponent of Gileadi's work. Jepson wrote in his journal that Otten, quote, was appraised of the problem and moved to correct it quickly. Gileadi was excommunicated. The verdict of Gileadi's counsel and this is from Jepson, was read from the pulpit in every ward in Gileadi's Salem stake, both in Relief Society meetings for the women and priesthood meetings for the men. Church members in his stake were warned that he was impure, unfit to provide the interpretations he offered. While ultra-conservatives were arguing with the church hierarchy about the nature of the purity system, dissenters, including the other five members of the September 6th, were arguing against the purity system itself, offering a different vision of the nature of the restoration. It is important to remember that while what happened to the six in September 1993 was extreme and that it was chronologically compact, it was part of a much larger movement by the institution to define and police the purity system. The church hierarchy sought to manage diversity of thought and identity with a standard of purity and a rapidly growing church. While the challenges made to the purity system varied widely, they do bear some striking similarities. Perhaps most pronounced was the claim that religious life was not a rigid system focused on rules and requirements. While the church was telling its correlated and sanitized history, the dissenters' claims too were rooted in history. The dissenters typically worked to make public the idea that church leaders of their day operated in a historical context and that their biases affected their perceptions and actions. Their work sought to show that things were not as they had always been, that the restoration movement had changed over time. One such example was Maxine Hanks's edited collection titled Women and Authority, for which she was excommunicated on September 19, 1993. As a whole, the essays in the collection argued that it was not the case 
that Joseph Smith had made women second-class citizens in the Restoration's faith community, but that later church leaders had worked to gloss, sanitize, and forget the power and authority that Smith recognized in women. The essayist in that volume made arguments similarly patterned to the one Lester Bush made about the racial priesthood and temple bans. They argued that the way things were was not as they had always been. History telling was often the battleground on which these disagreements about the restoration's meaning played out. In different ways, though, it was also a contest about the sites of religious authority. While the hierarchy rooted authority in tradition and among its ranks, each dissenter talked about spiritual experiences that led them to believe that the road the institution was taking was not in line with God's will. They argued that personal conscience, individual experiences of the spirit, and other individual experiences like dreams were important sites of religious authority. As they located religious authority in multiple sources, the dissenters also imagined a God concerned not with purity, but with openness, inclusion, truth-seeking and telling, and personal relationship. One example of this comes from the words of Diane Wright, whose husband David Wright was excommunicated in April 1994 for his scriptural studies that challenged the historicity of LDS scripture and argued instead for a more significant metaphorical meaning. Diane wrote a letter to their bishop on February 17, 1994. She argued that David Wright was someone who pursued the truth wherever it might lead. She said, This church was founded on the search for truth by Joseph Smith. Joseph used every means available to him to find truth. Indeed, one of the great joys we have on this earth is our quest to find truth. From Diane Wright's perspective, her husband's scholarship represented the genuine vision that Joseph Smith had of the Restoration, a collection of individuals pursuing the highest truths and embracing wherever that path led. At the same time, as there were disagreements about the nature of God and the nature of the Restoration, the institution and its dissenters quarreled about how disagreements should be discussed. The nonconformists often argued that public dissent was a critical part of institutional health. Without hearing alternative, alternative voices, they maintained, believers would not be able to make informed decisions for themselves and the institution would not be able to acknowledge its problem areas, name its mistakes of the past and present, and move toward a better future. Individual dissenters were not the only ones making these arguments. Another notable example was the Sunstone Foundation, one of the groups that hosted the symposia church leaders found problematic. Albert Peck argued that Sunstone existed, quote, because the independent discussion of Mormon issues is healthy for Mormonism. There are things which should not be talked about under the auspices of the sponsorship of the church because that would convey the official sanction of the church. But believers needed a venue for discussing their questions, Peck argued, ones that should be explored rather than quashed. Those conversations also happened in church hallways, he observed. They are sometimes speculative, sometimes irreverent, but they are essential. Peck suggested that informal conversations about faith were vital to the life of the church. Many struggling with the purity system felt that the exploration of such questions fostered a healthy dialogue 
one that would allow all Latter-day Saints to stake their claim as members of the church while feeling ownership over their faith lives and spiritual paths. In the words of Lynn, Lynn Whitesides, who was disfellowshipped on September 14, 1993, and who is president of the Mormon Women's Forum and a leader in the B.H. Roberts Society, if the church had just left all of these groups alone, then most of the people would have worked through these issues and mostly been able to stay in the church. Some of the six showed a naivete about how institutions worked. They were surprised that the church responded the way that it did. They genuinely believed that their own quest for truth would be welcomed as soon as other believers could see things as they did. After Apostle Boyd K. Packer gave his talk in May 1993, where he explained the three enemies of the church, Lynn Whitesides appeared on Utah television on a Sunday morning talking about Mormon feminism. When the host, Chris Vanneker, a KXVX-TV Salt Lake City correspondent, asked her, are you demanding change? Whitesides responded by saying, we're asking, I mean, what can we demand? We don't have any power at this point, but we can say, listen to us. We have something to say that you need to hear. As the interview continued, two things happened. First, Vanneker asked about Whiteside's reaction to Packer's talk. In her response, she questioned Packer's relationship to Christ, arguing that a true Christian would not have declared intellectualism, intellectualism, feminism, and the gay lesbian rights movement as enemies. When Vanneker asked if she had any plans for nonviolent action and protest, she quipped, well, we're thinking about toilet papering the temple. And during all of this, she thought, in her words, well, I can do an interview on a Sunday morning. Who's going to be watching? They're all going to be at church. A few days later, she learned that, yeah, people were watching and that her disciplinary council had been scheduled. The dissenters were at times naive, and they also showed some anxiety. This anxiety may have stemmed from membership in an institution that sought to be a record-keeping people. They were pushing back against the ways the institution had hidden and sanitized its history. They were pushing back against collective forgetfulness. And their realization about how the institutional church was shaping its history telling to undergird its purity system, some feared that alternative voices would be stamped out. It seemed that the interest of a singular correlated narrative told by those with power would eventually overpower any record of another narrative. They feared that the one correlated narrative would be carved in stone. Because of this anxiety, and Michael Quinn was perhaps the best example of this, these dissenters at times worked tirelessly to write pages and pages of alternative narratives, perhaps subconsciously believing that sheer volume of pages and sheer length of footnotes could counter the tradition-making and correlated version of institutional history. When we impose the alliteratively appealing but illusory September 6th on this time period, we miss out. We miss out on the broad-scale issues that were happening and the years-long debates about the church's purity system. We, we get, as I've been arguing, the big picture wrong. But we also miss out on smaller-scale but equally important themes. 
And I want to conclude with an observation that strikes me as a really fascinating as really fascinating as we rethink our ways of describing this time. For my larger project, I had the pleasure of interviewing a number of people, three of whom I want to mention for this last example, Lynn Whitesides, Maxine Hanks, and Cecilia Contrafar. Had I stuck strictly within the boundaries of the six, I would not have included Farr, but as she lost her teaching job at BYU for her feminism less than a year before September 1993, her inclusion in our narratives of this time is important. Had I not interviewed her, I don't think this observation would have stood out to me as much as it did. These three women described their youth in similar ways. They were from working class families. They did not grow up in Utah, and all three had important experiences in the church in their youth. Because their local ward communities were small, they held a lot of leadership positions. They were encouraged as leaders to organize, to put on events, and to speak publicly and with authority about their religion. They were encouraged to foster their own sense of community and to see themselves as central to their communities. And all three felt empowered because of these things. I'll share Cecilia Farr's example to make my point. Her high school guidance counselor only ever expected her to get pregnant and drop out of high school. She never imagined Farr with a high school diploma. But at church, Farr, Farr heard something else. She heard that she was an intellectual, someone who had authority to speak about her faith, and would do well if she went to college. Of course, the college is BYU. In her words, quote, the church gave me opportunities I wouldn't otherwise have had. I imagined a future that wasn't for working class girls from Pittsburgh. After these empowering experiences in their youth, the three women interacted with the institutional church in Utah later in their lives in ways that made them feel as though they were hitting a brick wall. Those are Maxine Hanks's words, a brick wall. Hanks went on a mission and watched as the sister missionaries were overlooked for every leadership position, where she felt constantly reminded about the patriarchy of the priesthood and that she was a second-class believer. Whitesides attended BYU, where she realized that only one type of femininity was acceptable, and as an outspoken, say-what-you-think-in-a-direct-way kind of person, it was not a femininity that suited her. My point is this. Church leaders in the 1970s, 80s, and 90s were saying that feminism was a foreign and external movement trying to make inroads into the church. They did that for a number of reasons, in part because feminism countered aspects of the purity system that leaders would rather have left unquestioned. But I would suggest that the experiences of these women tell us another story. While it may not have been given the label feminism, they were told by their church that they were capable, smart, powerful, and authoritative. And then that same church told them that those traits that it had fostered and valued would only take them so far in an adult woman's body. And so feminism did not need to come in and find them. Their circumstances taught them that lesson. Their feminist awakenings were part of the Mormon tradition. For these three women, like others before them, the awakenings were built into the very heart of the church. It was in a church that taught them about their own spiritual authority 
about their leadership strengths and empowered them to see themselves as strong women and strong intellectuals in their own right. But it was that homegrown feminism that ultimately clashed with the centers of orthodoxy and purity. If we do not expand our lens beyond the rigidity of the September 6th, we don't get to see that. We are limited in the what, the who, the when, and the how of those final decades of the 20th century. Thank you. Hello, this is Andrew Hall, host of the Dialogue Book Report. Each episode features brilliant minds from the world of Mormon publishing. One thing we like to do is instead of focusing on a single guest, we like to bring in two or more guests who are working in similar fields and put their works in conversation with each other. Recently, we brought in Michael Austin and Stephen Carter, two of the leading cultural commentators of Mormonism in the 21st century, and had them talk about their recent biographies of two of the great minds of the 20th century, Vardis Fisher and Virginia Sorensen. You can subscribe to all of the Dialogue Journal podcasts by going to dialoguejournal.com and check out all of our past episodes. Dialogue Podcast Network.